and we will read uh, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 1. The Burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkosite, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood will he make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word and our consideration of this prophet tonight. It's impossible to read this book, uh, even these opening verses, without a sense of solemnity coming over our hearts uh, as we... Uh, read here the story of the utter and irrevocable destruction of a great city and a great nation, the nation of Assyria, the city of Nineveh, the capital of that city, so designated uh, as the topic of discussion in the third chapter and the seventh verse. It shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Whence shall uh, I seek comforters for thee? The destruction of this uh, great city. Uh, The time is somewhere between the fall of another great city mentioned in the immediately succeeding verse, third chapter and the eighth verse, Art thou better than populous No, the city of No Ammon, which was also a great city and well fortified, situated among uh, rivers and protected by them. That city fell to Assyria in 666 B.C. Assyria, Nineveh, fell in about 612 B.C. So we're somewhere in between. And uh, as the prophet speaks... Uh, the destruction of Nineveh is not in view. As a matter of fact, the destruction of Judah is uh, very present to the people. They are afraid of this mighty world power that had been a world power for so long, uh, hundreds of years. Uh, the greatest nation in the world at that time uh, had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and now is uh, threatening Judah, the southern kingdom. Yet, uh, at this point in history, a man that we know nothing about, Nahum, stood up and he makes this 
denunciation of Nineveh and speaks of her destruction. He uh, cries to the world the things that God has laid on his heart about Nineveh and about all those like Nineveh who shake their fist at God and who trod roughshod over the little peoples of this world, cruel and proud. The things that God had laid on Nahum's heart concerned God himself and what he was like. And that's the first thing that Nahum speaks of, the nature of God. As uh, we read in the first chapter about the person of God, uh, the second verse, God is jealous. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. In the sixth verse, Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Look at the multiplied words that speak of the anger of God. Seven different words in the Hebrew, all distinct. Every Hebrew word in the in the Old Testament that ever speaks of the anger of God brought together to focus in this one situation on what God is like, how God feels about uh, this nation and its attitudes and actions. Uh, Jealous, God is jealous. Jealousy uh, proposes, uh, supposes love, but a love that uh, requires uh, full love in return, a love that is jealous uh, of the full commitment of the object of its love to itself. Uh, that will brook no rival in answering love. Uh, It speaks of intensity. It uh, speaks of God's holiness. It's a holy love. Uh, You know, this isn't a very popular concept today, the anger of God, to speak of God's avenging, the, the retribution that God will... Uh, bring down on the head of those who go against him. It's not so much retaliation as just retribution. The wrath of God, uh, the phrase wrath, uh, speaking of uh, God's strange work, as it's sometimes referred to in Scripture, God is love. And God uh, does not willingly afflict, and uh, it's not the will of God that any should perish, we're told. And yet, uh, God's love is a holy love, and uh, there is this aspect of his love that when it's spurned, uh, he becomes indignant. The Lord uh, speaks elsewhere of his hatred of sin and of sinners. We have a tendency to I try to avoid some of the fierceness of this, and we, even conservatives, uh, we speak of God uh, hating the sin and loving the sinner, and there's an element of truth in there. Uh, 
but uh, you have to be very careful. God does not love the sinner who goes on in his sin impenitently. It says uh, that the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth, the 11th Psalm. God says that he has bent his bow and made it ready. He has whetted his sword, and if the wicked turn not, that then he will wreak his vengeance on him. God's anger brought before us here in such pictorial words, the word indignation and fury and fierceness, all speak of outward expressions of this. The Hebrew root carries the connotation of frothing at the mouth. God frothing at the mouth in anger is the, is the Hebrew connotation. It's not that, that uh, God loses his temper. We would completely misunderstand it. God doesn't lose his temper. God's wrath is his settled indignation against sin, his settled determination to punish sin when it's continued in. And yet the effect on the one who is punished, it will be as if this mighty being were frothing at the mouth. Uh, the impact of the wrath of God when it, when it falls on him. Uh, this is not a popular subject today. There are many efforts made to remove this concept. How many times have you heard that the Old Testament teaches a God of wrath and the New Testament teaches a God of love? And yet you look into the New Testament and you see what Jesus Christ said. He said, I forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him who hath power to cast body and soul into hell speaking of God. And he again says that uh, it's better to enter into life uh, maimed uh, than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. All of these words spoken by Christ, the terrible parable of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man dies and in hell he lifts up his eyes in torment. These words spoken by Jesus Christ. Uh, as you turn on over to the book of Hebrews, uh, and you find it stated that if men died without mercy under Moses' law, of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall they be thought worthy, who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and done despite under the Spirit of grace, that if men under the Old Testament were guilty when they rejected light, how much more under the New Covenant are men guilty? Uh, this, uh, there's no lessening of the impact of this aspect of God's nature when we turn to the New Testament. True, the love of God is brought out into bold relief in the New Testament in a new way, and yet this element of his wrath is still there. And the love of God is mixed in in the Old Testament also. The effort to remove this concept of the wrath of God has even been brought out in some of the modern translations. Uh, when I uh, did my <clears throat> seminary work, one of my professors was Dr. Leon Morris, and Dr. Leon Morris, in his book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, in which he examines the New Testament words uh, that are key words in the preaching of the atonement. He examined the word propitiation as used in the third chapter of Romans, and he showed how many scholars today, particularly the one that he had done his work under, Professor C.H. Dodd, uh, sought to remove the element of God's personal wrath uh, that was inherent in the use of the word propitiation, 
by translating the word expiation, which was uh, something of an impersonal thing. Uh, and yet uh, Professor Morris proved very thoroughly that this was wrong and that the concept of God needing to be propitiated, God's wrath being aroused against sin and sinners and him needing to be appeased, and that he has been appeased, his wrath has been uh, removed and placated through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Uh, this concept uh, he proved very conclusively and proves in his book uh, should be a part of New Testament teaching, cannot be removed. The careful description of the wrath of God which is brought before us here uh, is very instructive. And you notice that uh, God's wrath is something that he controls. It says that he is slow to anger. Uh, men lose their temper. God uh, uses his and controls it. But when it falls on a man, it's irresistible. And this brings before us his power. First, his person. God is capable of wrath. God gets angry. And this would have to be, if he's capable of love, he would have to be capable of wrath. The man who uh, can look at the atrocities in the Congo, the atrocities of the racial strife today, the atrocities of the communists, and not become angry and wrathful, that same man is not capable of love. Uh, the two emotions go together in a sense. It's when one loves strongly that then his anger is aroused, when love is offended against. But <clears throat> the power of God is brought before us when it goes on to say uh, that uh, he hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? power of God. Men may make light of it today, but there's a picture given over in the book of Revelation of what the great of this earth will do when the wrath of the Lamb is finally manifest. They will run to the rocks and they will cry to the hills and to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb in the face of him that sitteth upon the throne. It's not only it not only brings before us the person of God and the power of God, but it brings before us the principle uh, that this wrath is exercised on. It's deserved. He will in no wise acquit the guilty. And the guilt of Nineveh is brought before us as he speaks in the third chapter in the fourth verse, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcraft that selleth nations, and families, and so on. Behold, I am against thee. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. It's, it's cruelty. It's, uh, it lived by looting other nations. It's pride. Uh, this is uh, wrath that is deserved. Again, it's wrath that <clears throat> is delayed. You remember what the Prophet Jonah spoke about, do you remember the theme of the book of Jonah? Jonah, 140 years before, went to this same city of Nineveh, 
He was a reluctant prophet, but he went, finally. And you remember his message, his message as he walked with his flaming hair and burning eyes down the streets of that immense city with its great walls and its high towers. He had one message, yet forty days and none of us shall be destroyed. Forty days. You remember the result of his preaching. He gave no encouragement to repent. He simply announced the doom of the city. But the king and the people did repent. And they said, who knows but what God may, may be merciful. And they put on sackcloth and ashes and repented of their sins. And God did not destroy the city. He angered Jonah in that he didn't. Jonah was disappointed. And yet God uh, said to Jonah, uh, shouldn't I be concerned about this city with all of those uh, little children in it and so on? Uh, and he uh, delayed. This wrath is not only deserved, but it was delayed. And yet Nineveh repented of her repentance and went back to her cruel ways and her proud approach to life. And then uh, it is a discriminating wrath in the seventh verse of the first chapter, right in the midst of speaking of the punishment that shall fall upon the enemies of God, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Uh, you remember Abraham's question of God? Well, so, uh, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Uh, God's uh, goodness in protecting his own. It's a discriminating type of thing here. As he discriminates those who are his own and as he is a stronghold to them in the day of trouble. The message uh, not only concerned God, but it concerned Nineveh and its destruction. He declares the destruction of Nineveh is now fixed in the 14th verse of this first chapter. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image, and the molten image I will make thy grave for thou art thou. Your gods will not save you. You're done for. Your doom is settled. I have issued a commandment. The Lord of nations had decreed this nation shall be no more. Not only did uh, Nahum declare it, possibly 20 years ahead, he describes it as he gives details about the destruction of Nineveh. In the second chapter, the third verse, the shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men is in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. Here's this great army amassed against the city with their shields and their chariots. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The city of Nineveh was protected by five walls and three great moats with a huge channel uh, 
dug in there. And it says, The gates of the river shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved, and then the queen shall be taken away captive, and so on. Uh, in verse 9, we have the looting of the city brought before us. Take ye spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end to the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. In the eighth verse of the second chapter, of the first chapter, it speaks of, uh, but with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof. An overrunning flood. You know, Nineveh was destroyed. What was a prophecy has become history. And reading from Halley's Bible Handbook, we have it described how it took place. <clears throat> this great city that was uh, protected by five walls and three moats or canals, uh, that was uh, comprised of an inner city three miles long, one and one half miles wide built at the junction of the Tigris and Kosher rivers, was protected by walls 100 feet high and broad enough at the top to hold four chariots driven abreast eight miles in circuit. Uh, this proud city thought it could never be destroyed. The fall of Nineveh in 612, within about 20 years after Nahum's prediction, an army of Babylonians and Medes closed in on Nineveh. After two years of siege, a sudden rise of the river washed away part of the walls. Nahum had predicted that the river gates would be open for the destroying army. And through the breach thus made, the attacking Babylonians and Medes swept into their work of destruction, prancing horses, cracking whips, rattling wheels, raging chariots, flashing swords, great heaps of dead bodies. Its destruction was so complete that even its sight was forgotten. When Xenophon and his 10,000 passed by 200 years later, he thought the mounds were the ruins of some Parthian city. When Alexander the Great fought the famous battle of Arbela, 331 B.C., near the site of Nineveh, he did not know there had ever been a city there, and so on. The destruction taking place, just as indicated by the river flooding and dissolving the walls and the defenses falling apart at that point. The principles involved in all of this, uh, we've already seen the person of God, what he's like. You know, it's a very profitable study to study the nature of God, the attributes of God, in a little book like Pink's book, The Attributes of God, or in a study of the Shorter Catechism, uh, any doctrinal uh, study that deals with the nature of God, it will keep us from many an error that's very prevalent in our day about the nature of God. Uh, second, uh, the patience of God is brought before us as, as he is slow to anger, as he warns and warns and delays and waits. Then again, the principle of the punishment of sin, that he will not in any wise acquit the wicked. When a man remains impenitent, uh, what more can God say than he says in those verses where he, where he combines all of these words about his anger? What more 
could God say to impress us with the fact that he will punish sin? And uh, that pride, the pride that neglects him, the cruelty that mistreats our fellow man, uh, the uh, impenitence which continues to go on in sin, often going on in it, feeling safe because we've heard that God is merciful. What more do we need to have said to us to realize this principle of the punishment of sin? And finally, the principle of the protection of his own. He will protect them from their enemies. We might say, uh, we're wicked, we're guilty. How can God protect anyone? Are not all guilty? Have not all sinned? Yes. And yet, uh, there is a way that God can be just and yet be merciful. It's brought before us in the 15th verse of the first chapter. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. That verse is quoted over in the 10th chapter of Romans in the New Testament by Paul to say that just as God said that he would deliver Judah from her enemy Assyria and that one would soon come running publishing good news of the destruction of her enemies, publishing news of peace, even so that God would have those who would announce the destruction of our enemies. What are our real enemies? Not the communists, uh, not the uh, other things that would threaten us, such as our uh, business problems and other things. Our deepest enemies are our sin and our guilt and death. And Jesus Christ has dealt with these enemies and the real good news that God's messengers have to publish is that the righteous God, will, who will in no wise acquit the guilty, has provided a way whereby he, in mercy, can remove guilt through Christ's death for us. Tis in the cross of Christ we see how God can save yet righteous be. Tis in the cross of Christ we trace his mercy and his wondrous grace. He has promised protection of his own when we trust in him, when we accept Jesus Christ. The personal application of it would have to do with uh, our attitude toward the future as we observe our enemies of any nature. Know this, that Nineveh is a type. Nineveh is a representative group. All those who act like Nineveh no matter how strong they may be, will one day be overthrown by God. He will vent his anger upon them, and his anger is irresistible. And we need not fear, for he will protect his own. Again, concerning our obligations, if we are those that put our trust in Jesus Christ, Notice what he says about our obligation. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows. When you are in trouble and you turn to God for deliverance from your enemy and he delivered you, did you make any vows? 
Did you say, oh God, if you will only deal with this situation and deliver me and help me, then will I be faithful and then will I serve you and then will I do this and then will I do that? And did he deliver you? Then you have a tremendous obligation. Perform your vows. Follow through on the promises that you made. To the non-Christian or to the backslider, the doom of Nineveh was fixed. It could not be changed at this point. But your doom is not yet fixed. Uh, No declaration has gone forth about you. God is not willing that any should perish. He calls to you in mercy to come to him tonight while there is time, not to go on in your pride, neglecting him in your impenitence, going on in sin, but to turn in honest surrender to Jesus Christ now and to put your trust in him that he may be a stronghold to you in the day of trouble. In his name, we invite you to do that tonight.